0: The celebration of Easter is very different for us today. It's the first time I think in all my life when I've not shared this special day face-to-face with other believers. Our lives have changed during these past weeks, changed in some hard and frightening ways, but also in some good and encouraging ways. Many of us have been able to spend more time with those that we love, at least those who live in our house, And I'm sure there have been some moments when you have longed for more space or even less kids. But it's been good. And we have shared some introspective thought about life, how how fragile it can be, what things and what people should be most important to us. We've learned how to be patient, or at least we've tried, and how to trust. And quite frankly, many people have been drawn to think more about God, some have said that today might actually be one of the most attended Easter Sundays in the history of the world. We have the means to reach more people through this virtual gathering that we're experiencing today than we would typically on any other, any other normal Easter. So even in the midst of the bad, there is there is the good. And we welcome you today to celebrate Easter even in this very different way. She's the main character, other than Jesus, in our Easter story this morning, though she doesn't have star power that many might look for to cast in such a key role. But perhaps it's for that very reason that she so perfectly plays the part. Let me introduce you to her before she takes her place on the Easter stage. Her name is Mary, or Mary Magdalene as she was usually called because there were a host of Marys, including Jesus' own mother, who surrounded him in life. We actually met Mary Magdalene last Sunday, but let me expand on her biography a bit further today, at least what we know of her. She was from what appears to have been a pretty important coastal town called Magdala, located on the northwest coast of the Sea of Galilee. It was a fishing center, history tells us, that exported its tasty, salty fare all the way to the tables of Rome. It may even have been a place where Jesus' disciples could have sometime taken their own catch to sell at the market. Amazingly, and quite recently, the remains of a Jewish synagogue were discovered to help fix even more clearly this historic place. Back in 2009, in preparation for building a pilgrim retreat center there in that coastal area, A routine archaeological dig, which is required before any work like that can get underway, turned up not just the synagogue's remains, but something that's come to be called the Magdala Stone. It's a reading table of sorts upon which Jewish scriptures might have been spread out to read in the synagogue. And it bears a beautiful stone relief of one of the earliest discovered images of a seven-branched menorah. From other artifacts that are discovered in the surrounding area, including coins that date as early as 29 A.D., it seems clear that these ancient remains can be traced to the very time of Christ. The synagogue was decorated with beautiful mosaics and frescoes. Market areas were also found surrounding home foundations, pottery, ritual baths for ceremonial purifications, and even a Roman sword still in its sheath. Makes me wish I could personally see the place and take in more of the remarkable history, maybe someday. But I can still imagine how Jesus might have stood at that stone synagogue reading table or or sampled fish from the marketplace. or Well, you get the picture. But in this seacoast town was the the home of Mary, our our principal actor. Because it was also a well-established commercial center. It may have been where she gained some of her financial means. She was one among a group of women who came to be followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus, who supported him through their economic means. They became his his patrons. Luke describes these women in this way, as Jesus' public ministry was getting underway. This is in Luke 8, verses 1 through 3. Jesus began a tour of the nearby towns and villages, preaching and announcing the good news about the kingdom of God. He took his twelve disciples with him, along with some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. And among them were Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's business manager, Susanna, and many others who were contributing from their own resources to support Jesus and his disciples. But it's it's not the wealth of these women that stops me short in the description. It's that um, someone had been tortured by seven demons. Now, it had been bad enough to be possessed by one, but seven, that's almost beyond imagination. Some people possessed by demons were driven insane, like two men mentioned in Mark's Gospel, who behaved in such a fierce fashion that everybody always stood clear of them. One of the men cut himself with sharp stones and was was forced to live his life out among the tombs. There were no chains strong enough to keep him bound in any one place, so he just raged against all the countryside. His demons called themselves Legion, and they were eventually cast out by Jesus into a herd of a thousand pigs which quickly made their way down a steep hillside and into a lake all to drown. Sometimes demon possession evidenced itself with physical infirmities like, like blindness or an inability to speak or deafness or fits and seizures. We're not told how the seven demons manifested themselves in Mary Magdalene's life, but it's frightening to imagine. Until Jesus one day met her, And cured her. Now you tell me, do you think Mary Mary ever forgot that day? Ever felt like she could do enough to let Jesus know how thankful she was for the way he had forever changed her life? That's why she and all the other women followed him because of what he had done for them. And these women who became uh, the disciples of Christ and traveled with him did so as much as the men, including the chosen twelve. They were no less disciples even though they had far less notice. And now, interestingly, in the closing chapters of Jesus' life on earth, it's one of these women, Mary Magdalene, who is among those who followed Jesus to the cross, who stood there with his mother while listening to Jesus' last words, who watched him breathe his last breath, who saw the Roman soldier thrust a spear into his side just to be sure that he was dead, There was this Mary who also waited as Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus took Jesus' body down from the cross. Mary followed them to a nearby tomb. She watched them hastily wrap him in a burial shroud and place him in a cold, dark cave. She watched along with at least one other woman that was with her there as this great stone was rolled over the tomb's entrance as the night began to fall. She trudged back toward some place where she could stay, perhaps near in the same, or in the same place where those other hiding disciples were holding out in Jerusalem. But it seems that Mary couldn't sleep. Her, her heart was too torn. The, the soldier's lance may have pierced Jesus' side, but it might as well have been her own. All she could think about was how the one who had delivered her was now dead and gone, without even having the benefit of a proper burial. The coming of the Sabbath it kept anyone from doing a full job or preparing Jesus' body with a with this right, customary burial. And so long before morning light on Sunday, the first day of the week, after the required Sabbath rest, she felt her way back to the tomb through the darkness. She surely wondered how she'd even be able to get to Christ's dead body. Perhaps the soldiers who had been placed in this round-the-clock guard duty would have mercy and help her. But, possible or not, after all that Jesus had done for her, she had to do something more for him. When your dream dies, when your future comes crashing down upon you, when you can't see any way forward, sometimes all you can do is just put one foot in front of the other and shuffle painfully through the dark night of your soul. The Gospel writer John describes Mary's approach to the tomb and her startling discovery in this way in Chapter 20. Early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. She ran and found Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. She said, They've they've taken the Lord's body out of the tomb, and we don't know where they put him. Her challenge had quickly shifted from wondering about how she could move this impossibly heavy stone to seeing that someone else had done it for her. But her reasonable assumption was that Jesus' body had somehow been taken. When when you're still walking in the dark, overwhelmed by all the circumstances of life, it's not easy to assume anything but the worst, and as if this tragedy wasn't bad for her Savior, now it was amplified by the indignity of the fact that his tomb had been desecrated, his body stolen. What else could it mean? Oh, like the rest of uh, his disciples, she had heard Jesus talk about dying and even saying he would rise again in three days. But dead men don't rise again. She'd been there at the cross, you remember. She had She had seen him beaten before the agonizing hours of his crucifixion, perhaps. She'd watched him breathe his last, seen the blood flow out of his pierced side. She'd seen Joseph and Nicodemus lower him limp and broken to the ground and eventually place his body in their tomb. He was most certainly dead, and dead men don't rise again. And apparently... The disciples of Christ, the men, didn't really have any hope that that Jesus would make it beyond the grave either. They they didn't even have the courage, for the most part, to stand anywhere near the cross. Peter, the most confident among the whole bunch, had promised that he'd be there for him, even if it meant dying for him. But he denied even knowing Jesus when he was confronted by the accusation of just this young maid girl. Now he was hiding with all the rest of the men. But Mary had to tell them, at least what she had found, and so she she ran to find them. There's an awful lot of running that you see in this Easter drama. When your heart's racing and your emotions are high, you don't walk, you run. And John's account continues to describe what happens next. This is in verse 3. Peter and the other disciple, that seems to be John's modest way of describing himself, since he's the author of this account, they started out for the tomb. They were both running. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first he stooped and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there but he didn't go in then simon peter arrived and went inside he also noticed the linen wrappings, wrappings lying there while the cloth that had covered jesus head was folded up and lying apart from the other wrappings then the disciples who had reached the tomb first the disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed for until then, they still hadn't understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead. Then they went home. You know, if it, weren't, if it weren't so sad, it would almost make you smile to see these two grown men in this foot race to see who could get to the tomb first. They forgot they weren't as young as they thought they were. John the younger one, though, fares better and arrives before Peter, but he can only... Stoop to look and see just the linen wrappings lying there, not actually going all the way into the tomb. And when Peter finally arrives, wind dead and panting, but true to form, he not only looks, but he, he rushes inside the tomb, and he, he sees more than John had. Not just the linen left behind, but the burial cloth that had covered Jesus' head, all neatly folded in a stone slab that had held his body. And John soon joins him, but they neither know quite what to think. Resurrection was not where their minds raced. But if it were a grave robbery, these robbers were the neatest that could ever be. If you if you go home to your house someday and find once inside it that some things are missing, things that had been carefully hidden away in boxes or closets or dressers, but that are now gone, and yet the drawers or the doors or the box tops have all been neatly left in place, and none of the rest of the house is in any disarray, you might conclude that you've been robbed, but it would be in a very untypical way. It does say that John, the disciple who had won the foot race, saw and believed. But what did he believe? Perhaps it was only just that the body was certainly missing. Because it goes on to say that neither of them up to this time understood the scriptures that said Jesus must rise from the dead, and As if this weren't enough, it goes on to say, quite matter-of-factly, that both of these men just went back home, or wherever it was, they were staying, hiding out in Jerusalem. There were no hallelujahs, there were no high-fives, no no shouts or choruses of up-from-the-grave heroes. They just went back home. There's not even a goodbye for this distraught Mary Magdalene who, who stays behind. They're still in the dark, quite literally and spiritually, as these men hurry back to their hiding place in the city. Because soon the sun's going to come up, and people might see them or even recognize them as disciples. So they do the secret knock on the door to get in. They, once in, slide the bolt securely back into the door. They pull the curtains, and maybe they even went back to sleep. Amazingly, that whole early morning reconnoitering doesn't seem to have really phased them in any significantly spiritual way. But Mary, she stays at the tomb. She she does not, she cannot hide. She she's not afraid of the morning light because she loves Jesus in a way that only someone who has had her whole life freed from a torturous demon possession can love someone. Even if Jesus were dead, she still owed him her life and her love and she would stay. John's account continues in verse eleven. Mary was standing outside the tomb, crying, and as she wept, she stooped and looked in. She saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying? The angels asked, because they have they have they have taken away my lord, she replied, and I, I don't know where they put him. She takes a more careful look inside the tomb herself now that the men are out of the way, and she sees these two white-robed angels, or at least what she later comes to realize they are now to be honest, most of the time when people meet angels, white-robed or not, their reaction is anything but calm, it's usually terror in fact the whole the whole drama at the tomb is amazingly restrained their reactions are are measured while Mary is crying probably more accurately wailing, desperately heaving in and out of her soul. But the angels are more like observers than they are a frightening present. They, they aren't the ones that are making Mary cry. But these two angels, one on one end and the other of where Jesus had been, speak these tender words, Dear woman, why, why are you crying? Now, before I can even consider Mary's response, it seems like a, a pretty obvious question-answer question answer uh, to pose. Her Savior just died. Her The tomb is mysteriously empty. The, the disciples are often hiding and she all alone is standing there looking into this empty grave, this grave. She says, I'm crying because someone's taken my Lord away and I don't know where they put him. You grieve when you lose something precious to you, don't you? And this loss was now even doubled. She'd watched his dead body buried, but now she had the grieve the further loss of his body stolen. The last thing Mary had him expecting was a resurrection. All she could do was imagine this grave robbery, and all that was left for her to do was to bear her soul and and cry. There's a temptation to read this story like a lot of scripture from hindsight and to wonder why Mary and all the other disciples didn't believe why they assume the worst rather than anything that could be the best. But Easter, by its very nature, was a surprise. It it runs contrary to all the fundamental laws of human experience. You and I both know that dead people stay dead. I'm struck by the way that biblical scholar N.T. Wright puts it in an Easter vigil sermon. He says, Easter is supposed to be a surprise. It isn't supposed to be the sort of claim that people can look and say, well, I suppose it might be true. A little unlikely, perhaps, but quite possible. Maybe I'll consider it. Anyone who said that hasn't got the point, he says. Easter is not just unlikely, it's impossible. But it happened. Easter isn't just difficult to believe. It's unbelievable because it doesn't fit into any of other kinds of categories. To believe in the Easter gospel is to have your mind and your heart torn open in quite a new way so that the new day can come flooding in. Easter is about believing what you thought you'd never imagine. It's about living in a way you'd never dream possible. It's about Jesus returning from the dead and launching the new creation in which all is forgiven and all is remade and all is reborn. But for right now, all Mary Magdalene could do, angels or not, was to stand there and cry. Her Savior was gone. She didn't know where. Her dream was ended. Her future was uncertain. And all she could do was cry. Until... Well, you know how it is when you get that strange feeling that someone's behind you? She turns to discover that someone really is there. And John's account continues this way in verse 14. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Dear woman, why are you crying? Jesus asked her. Who are you looking for? She thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, If you have taken him away, please tell me where you put him, and I will go and get him. There's that exact same question again, offered in the very same way, same words. Why are you crying? Again, you'd think the obvious would be obvious, but then again, the obvious about what she was seeing was not obvious either. And who was she looking for? For for Jesus. Craig... Barnes talks about how the philosopher, the French philosopher Paul Ricoeur has written about the creative possibility of what he calls limit experiences. A limit experience is an experience that's beyond the limits of normal life. It's the, it's the one you spend most of your life avoiding and dreading, like death and separation. Beyond the limits of we think, of things, we think there's nothing but emptiness, loss, social chaos, but as Recur reminds us, there's more. There's also God, whose creative love knows no limits. Now, how often in your own life have your most profound understandings about God and faith come when you you've reached a limit, a profound limit? When when someone that you've loved has died, when relationship that that meant everything to you suddenly gets irretrievably broken, or the job that you worked your whole life to achieve is suddenly taken away from you. Or when some Easter, a world, a whole world, is brought to its knees by a deadly virus, and we wonder if we're clever enough to find our way out of its ugly grasp. Talk about limit experiences. It's when we hit those kind of walls, and Mary can only see what appears to be the obvious. It's just the gardener. Even the greatest dreams have their natural limits. Her nightmare is just going to continue on and on and on until... Until Jesus speaks her name. Back to John's account, verse 16. Mary, Jesus said, she turned to him and cried out, Rabboni, which is the Hebrew for teacher. Don't cling to me, Jesus said, for I've yet ascended to my father, but go find my brothers and and tell them I am ascending to my father and your father to my God and your God. Jesus speaks Mary's name and her whole churning world suddenly stops in that tender moment. No, no matter what she had heard him teach or do, it was how he just now spoke her name that let her know that it was Jesus. There's an Old Testament Psalm 34, verse 8, that includes these words, taste and see that the Lord is good. Perhaps it's another way of saying, experience the goodness of God. I'll admit it, I'm a bit of a complex guy. My wife will tell you that. I'm, I'm a mixture of, of head and heart. Uh, maybe a bit of a teeter-totter between the two. There, there are times when my head is too big and my heart is too small. I don't mean that I don't care, I don't love, and I think my wife and people that know me well would say that my heart can be generously full But I like to reason things out. I'm analytical by nature. I like ideas, reason, theological argument. But here, in these verses, my head needs to consider my heart. I need to hear what Mary heard that led her to faith, to hear Jesus say my name, to know him, and to be known by him, not just in some heady way, but in a way that connects deeply with my heart. James Buchanan in a sermon on Easter shared uh, this about how Serene Jones, the president of Union Theological Seminary, says that we try to deal with uh, resurrection by, by turning our faith in Jesus into primarily intellectual endeavor, by accepting certain doctrinal faith claims. But she points out Mary's experience in the garden was decidedly not abstract or doctrinal. Quite the contrary, the scene between the two of them, Mary and Jesus, is visceral, human, emotional, and deeply, deeply personal. For Mary, faith in Jesus was not based just on ideas or theological proposals, but a, but a presence that she could experience through her senses, one that she saw and heard and touched, even if she couldn't cling to him. We have trouble here. We're we're uncomfortable with the idea that he walks with me in the garden. We are never more at home than with our creeds and theology and doctrine. I wonder if it's no mystery why a bunch of men were hiding in doubt while a woman named Mary found her way to faith through the tender mention of her name. i preached a whole lot of Easter sermons over my years that have focused on the strong reasons to believe in the resurrection, the proofs. And I think that kind of argument has its place, but there's also something critical to remember about faith, and that is that it's the product of a relationship. What convinced Mary that it was Jesus was the way that he spoke her name. All the parables he'd talked, all the sick people he'd healed, including herself, paled in the simple and loving way in which he knowingly spoke her name. Tong Long uh, tells a story about uh, Marianne Bird. Marianne had a rough growing up. She was born with a cleft palate and a disfigured face. She had also this lopsided feet that made it very unnatural for to walk. She just kind of waddled. Naturally, she was a target for all the school age cruelty that other children would muster up with comments like, well, did you cut your lip? Or they'd say, how come you walk like a duck? She lived in a consistently dark world. One year, her teacher was Miss Leonard, and Miss Leonard was a short and round and a little dowdy, but she shined with kindness. And back in those days, teachers were required to administer a kind of homespun hearing test. A teacher would call each student up to the desk and have the student uh, cover up one ear and then the other, and the teacher would whisper something to see if the child could hear. Usually the teacher would say something like, uh, the sky is blue, or you have on new shoes today. Well, Mary dreaded the test because she was also deaf in one ear, and so this test was only going to give another chance for her to be singled out because of the deficiencies of her life. So on the day of the test, when it came her time uh, to be tested, uh, She kind of waddled and shuffled forward, and she covered up the bad ear first. And then as Miss Leonard leaned in close, Mary Ann heard words that would change her life. Because Mary Ann, for her test, Miss Leonard whispered, I wish you were my little girl, Mary Ann. And through those words, and amidst her personal darkness, Mary Ann heard the voice of Jesus, the voice of love, the voice of grace, and and it changed her. She grew up to become a teacher herself, and now she shines with that kind of kindness and grace for all of her students. And it started when Mary Ann heard Jesus call her name through the voice of a middle-aged teacher. Mary Ann. It means so much to be loved and accepted, to know that Jesus knows my name. Like I said earlier, we really don't have any record of how Jesus cast out the demons from Mary Magdalene, but I wonder when he met her before or after she was healed, if you might have asked her, even in the midst of all the terror that was surrounding her, what's your name? And if she might have sensed that he was one of the first in her life who cared more about her than the reality of her demons. And I wonder if after he healed her, he might not have said, Mary. Mary Magdalene, why don't you come and, and follow me? We can make all the strong arguments in the world that Jesus was raised from the dead again, but one of the most persuasive means that may affect the the, the most greatest way to reach someone just boils down to love. Introducing people to Jesus so that he can know and call them by their names. Now again, there. There aren't any trumpets, there aren't any angels singing in the moment, but Mary knows for sure that Jesus is no longer dead. He just spoke her name, and she falls to his feet, tries to hug him close to her. Don't cling to me, Jesus tenderly says. There are even greater ways in which I'm going to be a part of your life and others. I'm going to ascend to my Father, my presence, then will be available to everyone through the Holy Spirit. Well, Jesus doesn't say all of that, but I think, and, there, and there's some debate about exactly what he means here, but I think... That's some of the sense that he has. It's it's not that he doesn't want her to touch him, it, it's that he doesn't want her to cling to him because there's, there's something even better ahead for them. He's trying to help them understand that the relationship that she so deeply longs for doesn't have to be wrested from him through some kind of clinging embrace, but that love is going to get freely made available to everyone. And then Jesus does something very remarkable. He says, Mary, Go find my brothers and tell them. Someone in the early days of the church said that Mary was the apostle to the apostles. She was surely going to be the first witness to the resurrection, the first evangelist of the good news. She is the one who had not denied him, who had not deserted him, who had leaned into the terrible darkness of it all. She had, she had watched him be buried, and she had come back to finish His proper burial. And now she was to be the witness of his resurrection. Now you might think that Jesus would have preferred somehow to have uh, one of the men that he had chosen to be the first to make this sacred announcement. And, And Peter and some of the others would have their later time. But right now, this woman was the only one who had been ready and willing to believe. So he sent her. And I think even more deeply, he chose her. Like I said at the beginning, she seems to have had so much of a background role in the company of the disciples. She's mentioned in all four Gospels as being among the women who were the first to be the witnesses, but who would ever give such a critical job to someone who spent all of her life pretty much working backstage, who was at the very least an unlikely understudy for any major role. And so it says that in response to the commission of Christ, verse 18, Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. Then she gave them his message. You know, I wonder when she got to the place where these men disciples were hiding, if she didn't have to keep knocking at the door loudly before someone would let her in. I wonder if she didn't have to watch them roll their eyes as she told them that she had seen the Lord. John's gospel conveniently stops here in this scene of the story, but Luke adds a bit more. He writes in Luke 24, verses 9-11, through 11, They, the women, rushed back to the uh, from the tomb to tell his eleven disciples and everyone else what had happened. It was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and several other women who told the apostles what had happened but the story sounded like nonsense to the men so they didn't believe someone has called these women the midwives of hope those who do the priceless work of birthing belief at least they were midwives for those that were willing to hear and believe i wonder if the if the good news of the resurrection would have ever gotten heard and believed were it not for a few good women who were the first to believe. Celsus, a Greek philosopher who lived in the second century AD, was was highly agnostic to all the claims of Christianity and he wrote several arguments to convince others to doubt in the same way as he did. And One of his arguments that he thought was the most convincing was that Christianity couldn't be true because the written accounts of the resurrection were based upon the testimony of women, to which he added, we all know women are hysterical. Well, it was a patriarchal society in which Jesus lived and in which Celsus lived, where women were marginalized and really not often believed. In Jesus' day, the testimony of a woman wouldn't even be counted as credible in a courtroom. Perhaps it may be the very fact that God did choose a woman, women, to be the first witnesses, that is one of the strongest arguments against those who question their testimony, the truth of the resurrection. If anybody were making up a story so far-fetched as to say that Jesus was raised from the dead, why would they put the words of the witness to his resurrection into the mouths of women if it weren't true? It may be one of the greatest confirmations of the veracity of the whole story the Gospel writers provide provide us about the resurrection. Because the testimony was not put in the mouths of of men, I think Jesus' choice of Mary was highly intentional. It was no accident. It wasn't just he was there why he could have told Peter and John in their presence before they made their quick run back and forth between their tomb and their the tomb and their hiding place because Mary is the one who had the heart most ready to believe. I think Jesus appeared to her. Someone said the touching irony in this whole Easter scene is how, how frantically Mary was searching for Jesus while he was really looking for her. Jesus, Jesus really wants to find us in our lives. The first witness, the first missionary, the first preacher, if you will, was a woman who had been possessed by seven demons, having lived a life of tortured misery. Until Jesus came into her life one day, healed her soul, and tenderly called her by name. Before Jesus, she was probably just demon lady. But after she was free, she was Mary. Mary Magdalene. Won't it be interesting someday when we all get to heaven and see the the theater marquees of heaven? listing the names of all those actors that we have long assumed carried the greater roles, only to see in some of the brighter lights the names of those like this one that has the real lead in John's Easter story, Mary Magdalene. She was the very first one who got to say, I have seen the Lord. Let's pray, God, I'm thankful for this story and how it teaches us how it uh, it reminds us how much you want to be real in our lives and i I'm real thankful for this this principal character on the stage of this story for for Mary Magdalene and for the profound way that she loved God and was open to Christ and how how she had the privilege of being the, the, the very first witness to all that happened. I pray that you'll you'll give us a vision of those people in our lives that have an ability to be able to speak God's word to us, to teach us and open up our hearts. And God, on, on this this Easter Sunday, when there is so much that's rolling around in our heads and our hearts, I pray that you will help us to hear you speak into our lives in that tender way that you did to Mary, our names. God, we want to love you and to believe in you and to trust in you like she did. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We come to a closing time of communion, and I'm drawn to the words of the Apostle Paul that were written in 1 Corinthians 11. He said, On the night when Jesus was betrayed, uh, the Lord took some bread and gave thanks to God for it, and then he broke it in pieces and said, This is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup of wine after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood. Do this in remembrance of me as often as you drink it. For every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes again. I'm so thankful for the cross, and that as we eat this bread and drink this cup, that we remember his great sacrifice. But we also share this meal aware of his resurrection as we await his return. Communion is a time to look back, but also to look ahead. Let's do both on this special day. God, as we commune together in this unique way today, bring our hearts together. Bring our hearts to you. We thank you for the sacrifice of your Son. And we worship today in hope of his return at the end of time. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.